morning, everyone. Good morning. What a way to start a service. Amen? Amen. Celebrate with Jason and family and a day I'm convinced he'll never forget in his life. And thanks to Zach and team for leading us in worship and song and now let's worship in the Word of God, shall we? We're continuing our journey through the book of 1 Corinthians. We've come to a chapter today. Chapter 4 will be our focus. And in this chapter, Paul describes to the church at Corinth what a true pastor looks like. As I was preparing for this time with you, I was reminded that in our American evangelical world today, we have all kinds of ways of evaluating pastors, do we not? We evaluate them by their honorary degrees or the size of their church, how well they're published, how many podcasts are downloaded, what they dress like, their invitations to speak at conferences, conventions. We live in a world, candidly, in America, although some of that has been in decline since the pandemic, but of celebrity pastors, celebrity churches. I might suggest to you this morning, as popular as that practice may be, I believe it's offensive to God. And we're not doing these pastors any favors. We see over the last several years how many pastors, celebrity pastors, have had failings. I personally, and I know you join me as well, I grieve over those situations. And I wonder if we're not culpable in some ways because we make it a practice to elevate pastors by some of the criteria I mentioned earlier. The Apostle Paul takes great deal of time an issue with those type of things. And he was dealing with some of those types of issues in Corinth because you see there were celebrity pastor groups springing up there as well. People would follow certain teachers, pastors, Apollos, Peter, Paul. And so he makes it a point as he's led by the, carried along by the winds of the Holy Spirit to write this chapter to focus on what the true nature and the true marks of pastoral ministry should be. And I'll share with you, church, that as I read this chapter and have spent time in this, I've been convicted by this. I've been encouraged. But I want us to explore today, as God wills, what it looks like to be a true pastor. And I've titled the message that really a true pastor is both a servant and a father. Paul makes it really clear that it's not popularity. It's not your personality. It's not even your ability to communicate. It's not the number of degrees or the letters that you have after your name or numbers of your congregation that play a role in the Lord's perspective. And they should play no role in ours. Let's look at chapter 4, if you would, with me, in verse 1. Paul says this, 
He says, this is how one should regard us. Let me pause there for a minute. The us there, he's referring to Peter. He's referring to himself and he's referring to Apollos. He says, this is how you should regard us. These are the three men that were mentioned that were had groups of followers in this church. He said, you should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The word servant is really an interesting word. I know I'm going to date myself. Do you guys remember the, any of you remember the old movie Ben-Hur with Charlton Heston? Does anybody remember that movie? Yeah, right. Some of you do. You remember he had a season of his life where he's chained down in the belly of this ship and he's rowing. That's what this word means. He's an under rower. He's a galley slave. His life was worthless to anyone except the one that had the keys to the lock. That's the metaphor Paul's using here of pastors. They are under rowers, galley slaves, and they're stewards. So this description begs a question for me of the text that I want us to answer today. It, it, the question is, if that's true of a pastor, of a true pastor, then what authority does he have in a church? And if you're a note taker, this is the first note on your handout today. He has no authority of his own. No authority of his own at all. You see, as pastors, Paul goes on to explain, they have no independent authority. They're under the absolute authority of their master. To continue with the metaphor of a galley slave, the one who has the keys to the lock of the chains, that's whose authority they're under. They're the bottom rung of society. Paul will state this more graphically a few verses later. He says, we, speaking of these three men, he lumps them together. We have become and are still like the scum of the world. The refuse of all things. Why would Paul say this? Is he being deprecatory? Is he being condemning to himself? No, he's saying, for me, knowing of the mysteries of Christ and of God and what he's done, I'm just a galley slave. I have nothing of my own to add to this story. I want you to look at me as a table waiter. That's what I ascribe to be. He is everything. I am nothing. And look at verse 2. He says, moreover, it's required of stewards, these stewards of the mysteries of God, that they be found faithful. The word steward still indicates a servant. It's not the galley slave servant, but it's this kind of servant. This steward is a servant who's been entrusted to dispense the master's provisions to the other servants in the household. He's still a man under authority, but as the steward, he has responsibility for and authority over these other servants. So pastors, therefore, are dispensers 
of the mysteries of God. Earlier in this letter, in the second chapter, Paul describes what those mysteries are. He said, if you remember, he said, I decided to know nothing among you, Corinthian church, except Christ and him crucified. And I've had it said to me, well, okay, that's simple. I get it. Let's move on. (laughs) But can I just share with you something? I want to paraphrase a beloved pastor that I have so much respect for. He's gone to be with the Lord now, R.C. Sproul. But he talked about examining the mysteries, the profound mystery of Christ in him crucified every single day of his life. And he said this, he said, I'm convinced that even though I've explored this every day of my life and maybe I've peeled back a few layers, I believe that when my eyes close in death and they open in heaven, I will realize I've just scratched the surface. You see, no Human wisdom could have imagined that God's plan for the salvation of the world would be He would send someone who would die. Someone who would become the lowest of the low, as Christ was. Someone who would yield to the Roman authority. The Jewish idea of the Messiah would be one that would come and drive out the Romans, drive out those that had ruled that land, establish His kingdom forever, and be the prince. Well, beloved church, that day's coming. <laughs> it's another sermon for another day. That day will come. He will come as that, but his first time, and because it was a mystery, he came as that servant, the lowest of the low, Christ. It was a mystery. To the Jews, a scandal. To the Gentile, to the rest of us, we translate it foolishness, really, it's The better translation is moronic. And church, isn't it true that still today, even as I think of the younger generation here, and it's true for my generation too, isn't it still moronic to think about a cross? Paul says in the second chapter, he said, if the rulers of the age would have understood that mystery, they would have never crucified him. Because the power that was unleashed that day, that moment that we celebrated a week ago, that pinnacle moment of human history on that hill called Golgotha, the power that was unleashed that day has transformed the world. So pastors have no authority of their own. Instead, they're entrusted to dispense the gospel of Christ and Him crucified to the church. And it brings me to the second note that we have today. So what we have is that pastors are dispensers of another's authority. That is, it's the authority of King Jesus. Listen, church, I don't care what culture says. I don't care what any institution will say. Christ is still in charge. Sometimes we think even in evangelical world that there's this cosmic battle that's going on and sometimes Satan wins and sometimes God wins. No. God does this to Satan. It's over. It's finished. He's defeated. Christ is king. The authority is all his. And the beauty of his authority, it's an authority that springs 
from His servanthood. That's where the authority comes from. He served. He came to live and die. And what we see in the Scripture that is the most important quality of this steward is faithfulness. Faithfulness, trustworthiness. Look, In fact, it's required. Look at verse 2 again and notice it says, moreover, it is required. Do you see that? It's required of stewards that they be found faithful. God desires that His pastors be consistently obedient to His Word, unwavering in their commitment to be faithful. He does not require brilliance or cleverness or great communicators or creativeness or even popularity. He can use pastors with those attributes, but only trustworthiness is absolutely essential. In the next chapter, uh, the next part of this chapter, verses 6 through 13, he deals with the problems of complacency that we see in the Corinthian church. And sometimes I believe that complacent Christians in America are problematic for those that are far from God. When I think about complacency, I think about people who are not alert to the things of God. They're not ready to serve Him. They're not on fire. They're not necessarily turned off. They're just kind of in this limbo of what I would describe as a nauseating experience of spiritual life. There were four things that the Apostle Ari had noticed in Corinth that told the story of this. They'd seen, he'd seen divisions. They were divided. They split into these little cliques, each of them following a different leader. They would talk about how great a church they were, how tremendous their meetings were. They'd take credit for those as if they had something to do with that. There was jealous strife. There was infighting in the congregation of the leadership. And then there was this complacent spirit. Paul describes that condition in verse 8. If you look at it with me, he says, and I want you to see that he's writing tongue-in-cheek. He said, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. What do complacent Christians look like? There's two things we see in that verse. The first is that they have a sense that they've already arrived. Have you ever met someone like that? They feel though they haven't made. They know the whole truth. There's nothing you can teach them they don't already know. The Apostle Paul warns the Corinthian church of their complacency. And that warning echoes through the ages to us today as well. And then he closes the chapter with three new pictures of pastors, three metaphors that he uses. He calls them fathers, teachers, and rulers. And each of these metaphors for ministers will bring out a unique facet of the relationship that God has appointed between pastors 
and those whom they lead. And so we're going to read 1 Corinthians, starting with verse 14, chapter 4, verse 14. And if you're able, I'd like to invite you to stand with me in honor of reading God's word. If you so choose, I want to invite you to read it out loud. The reason I do this is because of the power of God's word. It's it's unlike any other work of literature that we will ever examine because of what itself attests, what the power that's contained in these words. Let's read them together. Shall we will read verse 14 through 17 and then we'll read verses 20 and 21. I do not write these things to you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father through the gospel. I urge you to be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere at every church. For the kingdom of God is not consistent all but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod with love? This is the word of the Lord. And Father, thank you for blessing the reading, the hearing, the teaching, the application of your timeless word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Father. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So here's the first thing we see in this passage. Just the third note that you have. You see that true pastors are compassionate fathers. Paul insists And those verses we just read that pastors are fathers towards their congregation. Elsewhere, Paul will speak about pastoral ministry in terms of a nursing mother. But here, Paul brings out two fatherly elements of his ministry. And here's the first. Fathers admonish. They don't shame. They admonish. You see that in verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed but to admonish you as my beloved children. He's explaining to them, I don't want to heap shame upon you. And we're going to see this in the weeks ahead, if God wills. There was a lot of bad stuff happening in this church. I mean, some crazy things. But he says, I don't want to shame you. I want to admonish you. Admonish you means to encourage you to make changes, to look at your life and examine it in light of the Holy Spirit and the Scripture and see what adjustments that need to be made. So true pastors will appeal to their folks, their people with dignity, with respect, with deep affection. It also means that pastors must renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways. And as we spoke of a few weeks ago, of tampering or watering down God's word. We don't adjust the message to meet the condition. The condition needs to adjust to the message. Here's the second thing that's true. That true pastors are not slave guardians. 
So what do I mean by that? Well, look at, look at verse 15 with me in your Bibles, if you would. He says, for though you have, you see those words, countless guides. You see those countless guides in Christ. You do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So what Paul's doing here, a countless guide was a hireling. In the household of a Roman, these guides were typically slaves of the household who were given charge over the education of the sons of the household. And so this is the metaphor Paul's using. He's saying, you've got countless of these guides or slave guardians. You've got a bunch of them here. But he's contrasting his ministry with theirs. He goes, I'm not like them. I'm not a hireling. I care deeply about the good of my children. You see, those guides, those slave guardians, they were hirelings. And when trouble came, they were out the door. Paul said, you got a bunch of them, but you don't have many fathers. I'm your father. I almost thought of Star Trek. Not Star Trek. Star Wars right there, right? <laughs> That's weird. That's Sorry. I think I'm on some medication up here. <laughs> no, he said, I'm your father. I'm not like those hirelings that come. True pastors have internal obligations towards their people, like fathers, not just external obligations like these slave guardians. And I want to share with you that what, what Paul is doing here is he's not placing a burden upon the Corinthians about how they should relate to him. Paul is describing the burden that he feels about how he should relate to them. True pastors admonish out of a father's affectionate angst. They don't demand undue devotion. They're servants. They're not masters. Here's the fourth thing in your notes that true pastors are consistent teachers. Paul says in verse 16 and 17, he said, I urge you to be imitators of me. This is why I sent you Timothy to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So Paul is saying there, he's explaining that pastors are teachers. And this seems obvious, right? But Paul's words clarify the precise nature of this teaching ministry. There's two things here. The first is that these pastors, these true pastors, their lives are devoted to preaching and teaching. So you see what he's saying here is that true pastors teach and preach out of overflow in their lives. They're devoted to this. And he's assuming that pastors will teach with words. Paul's saying, I've taught the ways of Christ deliberately, thoroughly, consistently, everywhere in every church. So it's a labor of love. It's a responsibility. It's a privilege that pastors have to dispense with the authority of a king, the mysteries of God. He's saying, 
True pastors are devoted to that. It's their life song. It flows out of them like a river, a spring of living water. But he's also saying this kind of life, beloved, as you look at your pastors, this kind of life poured out in preaching and teaching God's word is the bare minimum requirement for pastors. The second thing he says is he urges the flock to imitate him. And yet Paul models even more. He demonstrates that true pastors must go beyond mere words to provide an example to the flock. True pastors are not ivory tower lecturers blind to the real thoughts and feelings and life experiences of and the needs of their congregation. No. Paul urges the Corinthians to imitate him. And only a man who's lived out his life in sight in front of these people would be able to make such an audacious claim. Unless we think that Paul's making too much of himself, we should see that he's urging them to follow him in Christ later in the chapter. In fact, he becomes more specific. He says in in chapter 11, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Just on a personal note this morning, our pastor, Bobby Pruitt, is exemplary in this fashion. Here's the last thing. True pastors are committed rulers. A slave guardian, that countless guy that he referred to, if a child wandered from his education, that slave guardian might not care much, but a father would care deeply. If a wayward child went his way, that slave guardian may not spend have much attention devoted to bringing that child back. A father would stop at nothing. A slave guardian was only a hired hand who scattered at the first sign of danger or hardship, while a father would do whatever it takes to reclaim his beloved children, even if it meant laying down his life for them. So when the Corinthians became arrogant, Paul acknowledges that he must do the hard work of discipline to bring them back. Discipline is a difficult thing. There were some serious issues in this church. The gospel, the scandalous gospel, the moronic gospel of Jesus Christ and Him being crucified was put in danger by some of the actions of this church. Not that that message would ever stop. No, it's unstoppable force. But their example, they were compromising their witness by their actions. So Paul's serious when he tells them, this is verse 21 if you're following along, He says this, What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? 
What do you choose? Paul didn't want to come with a rod, but he's prepared to do so if necessary. We have three children. Our youngest is Joseph. He had several nicknames in his first three years of life. He picked up a nickname in his fourth year of Champ. And the reason we called him that is because he could water ski. And my a dear friend of mine who's with the Lord now nicknamed him that, and it stuck. And and uh, we've just always, always called him Champ. And so uh, I have to confess to you, church, that really probably the first six or seven years of his life, I never spanked him. Um, he was my bosom boy. He was my baby. Uh, he was winsome. I just loved having him. Uh, this was much to the consternation of our older two children, especially our daughter, who could never understand why I wouldn't whip him when she received so many whippings. And I told her, it's because you deserve them. <laughs> <laughs> Which was not entirely true. He deserved some too, but he was a baby. And it really got to a point where uh, he was spoiled. And in fact, when I first spanked him, and I think I, he was probably seven you would have thought that I had betrayed. I mean, it was the, the utmost betrayal when I spanked him. And so he started getting a little bit of trouble on the school bus. Imagine that, right? And we get letters from the bus driver and about things he was doing. So finally, I stepped in. And I won't use the terms I used with him, but I, I told him in no uncertain terms, if you get in trouble on the bus again, I'm not going to spare the rod. <laughs> I kind of asked him what Paul asked this church, right? Shall I come to you with a spirit of gentleness? Or should I come to you with the rod? Well, I was at work, and my wife Becky called me, and she had found his weekly reader when he got home that day on the bus. And in the front of the weekly reader, he had written this. Dear God, help me please God. <laughs> Dear Jesus, please help me. And I am laughing. I mean, it's, it's it just everything, my desire to really discipline him sort of dissipated, but it was, I think we still have that weekly reader. But the point of this, that story is this. There's times when spiritual fathers, when true pastors like natural fathers have to discipline their children. When a Christian slips into wrong doctrine or wrong behavior, he needs correction. He needs to be told in love, but with firmness. Look, your testimony is not what it should be. You're not living by the Bible. We have a high view of the Scripture here. We don't adjust the Scripture to meet the cultural demands. Why would we do that? If we loved you, we're doing you the greatest disservice of all. We need to be able to say, you need to change. Such confrontations, beloved, really are never easy. But they're often necessary. So as we prepare for the Lord's table, I want to leave you with this. Yes, discipline, committed rulers. Pastors are, are truly their, their fathers, their committed teachers, their they're rulers as well, but they're also the, the finest, the truest pastor who's, who's a wonderful servant and a steward 
and all of those things is a mere shadow of our Heavenly Father. And even when our Heavenly Father disciplines us, I can think of so many times when He disciplined us because when Jesus was on earth, it's like He told Philip that day, when Philip, His disciples said, show us the Father, kind of like, I'll believe you. Do you remember what Jesus told him? If you've seen the Father, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So how many times was Jesus' example of that compassionate Father, that dedicated teacher, that committed ruler, how many times in the way He disciplined us was so wonderful? So I want to leave you with that. And as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, this is what I want, want you to do. I'm going to pray in a moment and the team will come up. I've asked Zach to lead us in the, the, the song that Tomlin sings about good, good father. Isn't he a good, good father? Amen. He's calling us today. Calling us to himself. He's calling you. He's calling me. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. Your timeless word. There's no mixture of air. It's so powerful. I thank you for the example of Paul. I thank you for how you carried him by the winds of the Holy Spirit to write what true pastors look like. Lord, first of all, we pause and, and celebrate our pastor as such an example of those things. And I think of the other pastors we have on staff. They're they're amazing. And Lord, I know the unction that we have is that we want to be able to grasp with true reality what it means to be an under rower, to be a steward. But more importantly today, Father, for your people, I'm sensing that you want them to know that you are their good, good Father. That's who you are. Maybe they've been blinded by circumstances in their life and and tragic trails that they've taken and great loss. Lord, today I know You're calling them to Yourself. Holy Spirit, You are welcome here. Have Your way among us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Why don't you be seated for just a few minutes as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together, I want to remind us that on the night before He died, He disrobed and washed their feet. Do you remember that? And I think about how Jesus, the Father on earth, was demonstrating to His disciples that I'm your under-rower. I'm your servant. I'm going to serve you and I'm going to give my body's going to be crushed for you. I'm going to shed my blood for the full payment of sins. And I'm going to do that while I'm a servant. It's amazing to me. The truth and the reality of that. And so as we prepare to take this symbol of his body that he said was broken for you, that it pleased God to crush him for our iniquities. Take and eat. And then he took the cup 
which represented the Passover, that the angel of death would pass over the household that was marked by the blood. For those of us that follow Jesus here today and don't leave here today if you've not followed him, this is the mark by which he will pass over for us. This is the blood, the symbol of the blood, which is shed for you and I for the payment of all our sins. Take and drink. And lastly, I want to leave you this. He is the good, good father. He was the good, good father in every way. And I'm reminded, I've been reminded this week, when Peter betrayed him, the leader of the disciples, the one who said with such vigor, I will never, never deny you. I'll go to the death with you. And I think he actually meant it. Just some things he didn't know. Have you ever had experienced betrayal in your life and then you encounter that person later on? Someone who's betrayed you to the depths and the core of your being and you're a Christian and you think, well, I, I'm a Christian so I know I need to be cordial. I need to kind of at least nod. <laughs> but maybe down deep in your heart you go, I'm kind of done with you, right? Was that just me or is there anybody else in the room, right? But think of the good, good father who not only didn't do that with Peter, but he restored him to ministry. Or I think of the leper who was untouchable by society standards, but yet Jesus reached out and touched the untouchable and made him whole. I think of the woman who had the issue of the blood, who was crowding in people surrounding him just to reach out and touch the hem of his garment and receive healing. Maybe you need to touch his garment today. Maybe you're like the leper that you think, I'm unclean. I could never be anything in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is reaching out to touch you today. He is your good, good Father. Let's stand and worship as we close. What an amazing promise. Listen, my prayer for you is you go out this week, you be that light in the world, wherever you are, your workplace, neighborhoods, family, of that living hope. We'll have elders here. I'll be here. Uh, if there's a need, anything you want to share with us to pray, we'd be delighted. We'd be honored. It's been so great to have you here today. Thank you for being here. And as you go, as you're that light, may the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance to you this day and give you His great peace. You are loved. God bless you today. You're dismissed.